This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. That's the thing about Dr. Macarini. It wasn't just me he fooled. He fooled so many people. So many doctors, scientists, institutions, you know. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling-Biru. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So happy to have you with me. So there's a much-talked-about trial underway in Stockholm, Sweden. The trial of Dr. Paolo Macchiarini. Several years ago, the Italian surgeon made international headlines for pioneering windpipe surgery, synthetic trachea transplants, using stem cells. This was hailed as a breakthrough in regenerative medicine. Then accusations of misconduct arose. He was accused of unethically performing these experimental surgeries. Three of the patients he operated on at Karolinska have since died, and he's now charged with aggravated assault and standing trial near the Karolinska Institute where he performed the procedures. At the trial, you'll also find producer and my guest, Benita Alexander, who's come from New York to cover the trial in kind of a dual role. She's covering the trial for the Wondery Dr. Death podcast, but also for very personal reasons. In 2013, Benita Alexander, the Emmy-winning producer at NBC, met the so-called super surgeon while working on the documentary series A Leap of Faith. They had instant chemistry, she says, and a romance ensued. Paolo Macchiarini went all out, and their courtship was like something out of a fairy tale, with romantic vacations, the doctor lavishing time and love on her daughter, family, and friends, and then with invitations out for a wedding that was to be the social event of the year, with guests like the Clintons and performances by Elton John, and officiated by the Pope himself. But it was all a lie a scam, and a devastating blow for Benita Alexander and so many others. I met Benita at the hotel where she's staying in Stockholm while covering the trial. In our conversation, she tells her story, how she fell for Dr. Macchiarini, how he upheld all those lies, that wedding, and how she ultimately exposed him in a stunning turn of events, and also about the ongoing trial the medical accusations, whistleblowers, if she feels Karolinska Institute is complicit and what she hopes the outcome will be. In 2016, Benita spoke out in Vanity Fair, one of several reports that were major turning points in exposing Dr. Macchiarini. She's also made her own documentary, He Lied About Everything, in 2018, where she investigated her own story, talked to whistleblowers, family members, and more. But now in Stockholm is the first time in years she's come face to face with Dr. Macchiarini. So I started by just asking her, how are you doing? I'm good. It's been, it's been a roller coaster. Um, first of all, I had not seen him in seven years. So just the anticipation of seeing him again was um, giving me a lot of you know, anxiety. I just didn't know what I would do when I saw him for the first time. You know, coming into it, I was very anxious and... Once I got over that, um, which I can tell you what that was, <laughs> what was like in a minute, but since then it's it's um, it's been easier. I'm very much in journalist mode, but it's still draining. You know, I, I find 
sitting in a courtroom looking at him all day is just draining, you know, and he's about 10 feet away from me. And it's just, it's just difficult. Um, but I'm here for, I'm covering the story for the Dr. Death podcast. They had done my story and then they asked me, they hired me as a correspondent to cover the story. And I'm also here because um, it just to have some kind of closure, you know, just he's been walking around, I've been talking about this for seven years and he's been walking around all this time with no account accountability, no consequences, and no matter the outcome of the trial, at least he's in a courtroom, you know, and being forced to face the music. And I'm also sort of here on on behalf of all women that have that have been conned and, you know, I have a lot of support, which is lovely, and people encouraging me and thanking me. So I, I sort of feel like I'm I'm representing all women that have ever been conned to show them that you can you can fight back. What was his reaction when he saw you? So the way it is in the courtroom, there's a there's a glass partition between where the journalists and the spectators are sitting and the actual courtroom, and there are three rows of chairs. And of course, they put me in the in the first chair in the front row, so I'm very close to the defense table. And the first day, there was all this buzz and excitement because nobody was sure if he was going to come or not. And then nobody saw him, so we're in the courtroom, and I'm setting up my equipment. So I didn't even notice him at first. And all of a sudden, I look up, and I'm like oh, there he is. And so it was a bit of a shock. He, I think what struck me the most was his physical appearance at first. He doesn't look the same. He's, he's aged considerably. He's much um, thinner and he looks kind of broken, kind of disheveled. And he's got this little two inch gray ponytail thing going on, this like bad Antonio Banderas ponytail. So that was kind of funny. Um, but he wouldn't look at me, you know, he, he just, so he's staring straight ahead at the prosecutor. The, the area where we are all sitting is to the right, and he just wouldn't even look over there. And so after I got over the initial shock of, you know, seeing him, and particularly because it's in Swedish and I didn't understand a lot of it, I spent a lot of the first day just looking at him, daring him to look at me. I'm like, come on, look at me, you know, and he just wouldn't. Um, he ha We have since made eye contact, um, kind of by mistake, and he just... He, to me, he looked angry. He looked like he was scowling. And I think he's really puzzled as to why I'm there and probably really frustrated that I'm in that courtroom. But then I just averted my eyes and, you know, held my chin up high and kept walking, you know. We're going to get back towards the end. But just quickly, what is his defense? So he's being charged with aggravated assault in connection with the deaths of the three patients that he operated on here in, in Sweden. Those are the only patients that they can charge him with because it, the surgeries were done here. And um, they're accusing him of bodily harm, which is a fel felony for, for causing the deaths of these patients. His defense, essentially, um, it, there's a couple parts to it, but one of them is that he was not operating um, in a vacuum, you know, that there are many other people involved, which is true in, in you know, in making these decisions and, and in giving permission, or not giving permission, as it turns out, but in facilitating facilitating all of this and that he wasn't, you know, he just wasn't operating as a lone soldier. And that's a tricky one because there, you know, obviously he wasn't the only person in the operating room and there is some truth to that. And then he's trying to argue that all he was ever trying to do was, you know, take care of the patients and it was compassionate care and that, you know, he's painting himself out to be the big hero who wanted to rush in and save the day which is kind of sickening to listen to. Those are the s sort of two main, main parts of it, you know, that 
yeah, all he ever wanted to do was save people and that he wasn't doing this alone. Yes. I want to go back in your stories. Autumn 2010, Macarini was recruited by Karolinska Institute and the University Hospital. He performed, as you said, several of these synthetic trachea transplants. And 2013, he's also operating in Russia. You, an award-winning producer, journalist uh, from NBC, you'd worked with top talent like Brokaw, Matt Lauer, and Curry. You were doing, um, preparing to do two-hour special called The Leap of Faith with Meredith Vieira. You meet Macarini in, in Boston. What were you preparing? What was the show going to be? We were working, um, we started looking into regenerative medicine and we wanted to do something about regenerative medicine. I did a lot of big specials at NBC and so it was, it was vague at first. And then of course, in, as we started looking into it, Paolo Maccarini's name kept coming up because he was the leading figure you know, in, in regenerative medicine. So we started looking more into him and we wanted to find a case to center our special around. And he, at the time he was getting ready to operate on Hannah Warren this Korean toddler who would become the youngest person in the world to ever get one of his transplants. And her family was just so beautiful. They, they were living in Seoul, um, South Korea at the time. Her dad was Canadian. And I just fell in love with her family. And it was, it was such a heart-wrenching story because she was born with no trachea and she had spent her entire little life, she was two at the time, in the hospital. She'd never left the hospital. She just had not had a normal childhood at all. And the hope of what this could do for her and the promise of just giving her a normal childhood you know there was immense hope and so it became a very riveting story to to sort of build our special around and so our story our special was mostly about Hannah's case but then of course he was a huge part of that and so um we interviewed him the first time in February of 2013 and that's when I when I met him for the first time so this operation with Hannah was going to be in the States. Correct yeah. You have said that you had a personal connection with him quite quickly in the process. What was it like? What was that connection? You know, there was this this allure about this man. I mean, his nickname was the super surgeon. You know, he he at the time was very good looking. He, you know, had this kind of George Clooney thing going on and he was um, very charming. I had spoken to him on the phone and obviously watched interviews with him and he definitely has that charismatic charm, you know, kind of commands the room when he walks in. He speaks six or seven languages and you know, at the time, I thought this man was kind of incredible. I mean, he seemed very altruistic and wanted to help people. And, you know, I'm going to quote here from the Vanity Fair piece. So one of his colleagues in the States, Dr. Richard Pearl, actually does describe him as a Renaissance man, fluent in a dozen languages, and that this operation was just something that he'd never seen before. This man was a star. I mean, there was a reason his nickname was a super surgeon. People were flocking to him. People wanted to ride the wave with him. He was doing something that was groundbreaking. He was doing something that nobody else, literally nobody else in the world was doing. He was, you know, this pioneer that was willing to, to forge through and, you know, push down the walls and go where nobody else had dared go before and, and push medicine forward. And he seemed like... He was so vested in, in pushing medicine forward and breaking those barriers, and that was very admirable, right? We need people in medicine who are willing, you know, to bravely forge through new, new frontiers and take risks, and he was, he was a guy that was willing to do that. And then on top of it, you know, he's incredibly good-looking and charming, and, um, you know, he's got this soft voice and this sort of gentle presence, and he, he came across as just this 
incredibly caring, altruistic man who was, you know, taking this on because he just wanted to save people's lives. And that was, that was very appealing and very, very admirable. And he had so many people kind of falling at his feet. I mean, including institutions and, you know, everybody, everybody wanted. And if, if he were able to do what he said he was going to do, it, it was incredible. We, you know, we're talking about eventually getting to the point with a regenerative medicine where whatever's wrong with you, you basically just order up a new body part in the lab, right? You know, and they make it for you in the lab. And I mean, if that were the case, it would be incredible. I mean, the number of diseases we could cure, people in accidents, you know, getting new limbs or whatever it is. And he was the one pushing this forward. And when did you realize that it was more than documentary you were doing? I look. I had. I never in a million years um, would have expected that something would develop between us. He. I had spoken to him on the phone. Um, I was certainly, as everybody was, I think, imp- quite impressed with him. You know, and intrigued by him. You know, he was a fascinating person. Um, the very first time we met was in Boston, which was the first time we were going to interview him. It was the craziest thing. He. We were sitting at a table in a restaurant, much like we are right now, and. He came around the corner, and the second he came around the corner, he looked at me, and our eyes kind of locked, and something, some kind of electric spark went through me, and I remember thinking, what the hell was that, you know? Um, and, and of course, I'm in journalist mode, so I just thought, whatever the hell that was, let's, let's pretend that didn't happen, push that aside, and I was a little flustered. He was sitting across the t- table from me while we were talking, and I felt like a little schoolgirl. I was kind of blushing, and, I, and I, I was like, what the hell is going on? And then I thought, eh, you, you know, you just have some kind of silly crush on him which felt ridiculous um but he was good looking and he was charming um but there, there was definitely some sort of instant attraction between us um it and nothing would happen for you know a, months after that but there was some sort of instant you know chemical attraction or something <laughs> yeah take us through those months after that how did he sort of wine and dine you so we were preparing for hannah's surgery hannah was um Hannah's surgery would end up being in Illinois in April of 2013. And so there was a lot of prep for that, obviously. Um, we went to Seoul twice to, to tape with Hannah and her family and to do preparations. He came to Seoul on one of those trips. So we spent a little bit of time together then, not, not a lot. Um, but on the flight from when Hannah was brought over to the United States, he flew there so he could be on the plane with her. And he and I sat together on that flight. And that's a I forget how long, 10, 12, 13 hours, something, something like that. And we sat together, and so we had a chance to really talk on that flight. I, at the time, was in a very vulnerable position. I would not really realize that until later, but my ex-husband, we had been divorced by that point for three years, um, was dying of brain cancer. The father of your... The father of my daughter, our only child. And it was horrible because I knew he was going to die and I'm trying to prepare this little girl who at the time was nine um, for losing her dad and she was very much daddy's little girl and I knew this was going to greatly impact her life I mean how do you tell a little girl that her dad's gonna die and so I ended up opening up to him about this and he seemed so caring you know he 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 listened he was such a good listener and he seemed so vested in this little girl that he had never met. And that really touched me, you know, and he was giving me really kind, sage advice, actually, about what to tell her, how to tell her, you know, when to tell her. And so we became friends. And then once we 
got to Illinois, there was also a lot of shooting leading up to the surgery. And, you know, we would go out to dinner sometimes after shoots or at the end of a, a day in the hospital and sometimes in a group and a few times alone. And we became friends first. And I was really moved, actually, by how how caring he seemed, you know. And then there was a pivotal moment where I knew that my ex-husband was not going to make it and I knew I was wasn't going to be able to say goodbye to him and I was sort of saying to him I this is horrible you know and he said he said to me you need to find your own way to say goodbye whatever that is you know you need to figure that out and I ended up I called him or texted him I think the next morning and I said I I know what I want to do and he went with me he had a motorcycle he loves motorcycles and he had rented one there and I went and got three birds of paradise. It's a flower. It was John, my ex-husband's favorite flower. And I got one for me, one for him, one for my daughter. And I wanted to throw them in the water somewhere. And so he spent a couple hours with me. We drove along the river, the Illinois River. And um, he left me alone by the water while I went to throw these flowers in the water. And, you know, stayed back. And when I walked back to him on the motorcycle, I was crying. And he just looked at me and he gave me this big hug, you know, one of those really tight, warm embraces. And that was the moment I just thought, oh, man, you know, I'm falling for this guy. I knew it. I just it was kind of impossible to resist. In hindsight, do you feel that this was true on his part? Was he playing or? I don't know. You know, this is the subject of much debate now. Did the man really love me or not? I I don't know. You know, you're going to get very different opinions about that from my friends. (laughs) There are some of my friends and my family members to this day who, who insist that he was madly head over heels in love with me, that he adored me. They said, we sat with you, we spent time with you, that man adored you, you know, and, you know, he spent so much time with me, he spent so much money, uh, not just on me, my daughter, my family, my friends, he doted on me, and he was adoring, you know. It's hard to imagine it wasn't real love, but I don't know anymore. I don't know if anything about that man is real. As you were mentioning the money, we've seen a lot of things about Tinder yes. swindlers and things like that. He was not asking you for money. No. This man was, no. you had no reason to suspect. No. So he, he quite literally swept me off my feet. I mean, it really felt like a fairy tale. And I am not the kind of person that needed or wanted Prince Charming or a fairy tale. But he was so incredibly romantic. You know, he... He flew me all over the world, the most incredibly romantic trips. Everywhere we went, there, there was a surprise. He loved to surprise me. So, and there are videos of this. It would be rose petals, you know, all over the floor in the bed and a big heart made out of rose petals on the bed. You know, the best restaurants, the best hotel rooms, the best, you know, he took me to so many beautiful dinners. You know, he always ordered the most expensive champagne and the, I mean, took me on shopping sprees, spent money on me. Like, I had never experienced anything like this. Um beautiful vacations you know and it wasn't just me you know he my daughter once once I introduced her to him came on many of these vacations with us he paid for everything in New York he would take huge groups of my friends out to dinner pay for everything 15 20 people you know with very expensive bottles of wine he was exceedingly generous exceedingly generous he did not want money whatever he wanted and on top of that he was just it was so romantic I mean I felt like I was floating on clouds, you know, I was so blissfully happy. And it was, it was just, I was so madly in love with him. And I felt he, he felt like everything. I mean, like if you had a checklist of everything you want in a man, every single box was checked. 
And to the point that my friends were jealous, you know, in a, in a very sweet way, you know. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? Who, it was a dream. It really was a dream. And everybody would, was hanging on their seat. I come home from a vacation. What did he do now? What did he do now? And everybody said, I want one of those. You know, how do I get one? Does he have a brother? Does he have a, you know. <laughs> At this point, were you still doing the documentaries? So this is, this is the difficult part. When I, um, initially when we became, we became romantically involved not long after Um, my my ex-husband passed away and it was a very very difficult decision for me obviously as a journalist you know there you do not get involved with the subject of your story and there's a good reason for that right because if you're telling a story about somebody your you know objectivity could be compromised and it's just kind of this hard invisible line that you don't cross in journalism and everybody knows that I never in a million years would have imagined that I would cross this line but I think I was so vulnerable at the time and he was so you know exceedingly charming it was really difficult to resist the story was almost done when when we first became involved and then um hannah died and after that we didn't really know what to do with the story um and then we weren't sure what to do with the story and so we kind of put it we shelved it for a little bit and then we decided because we all thought we were going to have this beautiful happy ending you know Hannah home running around the yard in Korea and it was so sad we couldn't imagine doing a documentary that had such a tragic ending but then we started to, we decided to pivot and make it more about po- regenerative medicine and Paulo's work and when that decision was made I said look we can't you know now it's more about it didn't start out being about him but now it was going to be more about him and I said we can't and he was not happy but we did we separated for it was the summer of 2013 and we were barely in touch But then that September, um, we had one last interview to do with him. Um, and I ha- was having my own health scare at the time on top of everything else. And I had to have surgery to have fibroids removed. And we did our last interview with him. And I literally went into surgery the next morning. And he had come to, we'd flown him to New York for the interview. And he had said to me, he sent me a text and he said, listen, because you're having surgery, I'm going to stay in New York for a few days, you know, just to make sure you're okay. And I said, why would you do that? You can't come to the hospital. You know, I can't see you. I'm not going to see you. And he said, I don't care. You know, I'm not leaving until I know you're okay. Which also, of course, was, I was like, oh, you know, like who does that? And I just had a moment the day after surgery. I was in the hospital room and I thought, what am I doing? You know, this man is crazy head over heels in love with me. And I just wanted somebody to wrap their arms around me and for everything to be okay. So I was in such a vulnerable place and I just thought, you know what, the story's done shooting now. I just, I can't say no. And so I texted him and said, can you come to the hospital? And of course he showed up with a single red rose and you know, my mother was there and, and he charmed the hell out of her. And when, when he left, my mother just looked at me and she said, if you don't follow this, you're crazy. And that's when we when it started again. He proposed quite early, already in Christmas of 2013. In June of 2014, that's when the first reports of suspected misconduct in, from Karolinska come out. What were the accusations? Well, this was very interesting because we were, you know, um, involved in this very intense, beautiful romance. And we were seeing each other a lot. You know, he, he would either come to New York and spend time or he would fly me to wherever he was. Um, So we spent a lot of time together. He became very integrated into my daughter's life. And, um, you know, we knew we knew that we planned to get married. He, he had told me when we met that he was separated from 
he had this Italian wife and that they had been separated for many, many years. And they had two children who were close to 20 at the time, late teens. And everybody knew this. You know, he lived in Barcelona. She lived in Italy. So there were... It was no secret that he had been separated. They were not divorced because they were Catholic. Correct. He said, look, I've just had no reason to get divorced. It's hard. It's Italy. We're Catholic. You know, it's kind of frowned upon to get divorced. It's not easy. And we live separate lives. And, you know, and I was fine with that. And then when he told me that he wanted to get married, I said, well, you've got to get a divorce. And he said, well, because I've met you now, I finally want to get the divorce. And I've started the proceedings. So as far as I knew, you know, he was getting a divorce. And... It was sometime in 2014 when he told me the divorce um, was had gone through and we were clear to get married. And it was he had proposed before that, but it was more of a propo- promise proposal to let's wait till the divorce. That's when we started planning the wedding. So when the when the allegations first came out in um, June of 2014, I didn't know anything about them um, or very little about them. Whatever, not there was not much news about it in the United States at the time. But the way he explained it to me at the time was that. And this is sort of the way he explained everything, that this was, he had people that wanted to take him down. He had jealous colleagues that because he's at the height of his field and he's this pioneer, you know, that there are people who are jealous and he's getting all the fame and the accolades and particularly in the scientific world that people, people didn't like that. People wanted to destroy him, which makes sense. You know, my father's a physicist and, you know, he affirmed that this is very common in the scientific field. And so... You know, he was going through a difficult time, but and, I, Hannah. and Hannah had died, and he was very, very distressed. But I did not find out how serious it was until November of 2014 when there was a article in the New York Times. Um, and I can't remember exactly what the headline was, but that's when it said that he was being charged with scientific misconduct. And um, he was flying to the United States for Thanksgiving, and, and we were going to California to spend time with my family. And I was so angry. I was furious. I said, why the hell didn't you tell me about this? And that's the first time that I knew how serious this was. Um, and he changed. He was very depressed and dejected. And we spent much of that family trip actually um, sort of huddled down in the hotel room with me helping him respond to press requests and inquiries and trying to just help him cope with this because he was kind of a mess. And all the time he was sort of explaining that this is common, this happens, people... It's a witch hunt. To him it was a witch hunt. Let's get into the wedding. Mm. Um, So (laughs) at this point you're planning this wedding. Correct. And, I mean, everyone was coming. Elton John was coming. And most of all, he was saying that the Pope himself was going to officiate your wedding. Talk about how he... Yes, I think this needs a lot of explanation (laughs) because if you hear this, it sounds absolutely ludicrous. And I I completely understand that. I think if if I heard that someone was getting married, I'm like, please give me a break. Um, but what happened was, you know, he's Catholic, and he said from the beginning that he wanted a big Catholic wedding, um, and he wanted to get married in Italy, close to where his mother lives. And I said, okay, fine, but how's that going to happen? I'm not Catholic, but I know enough to know that we're both divorcees, or so I thought, and that's going to be complicated. And he said, leave it to me. You know, I will, I will figure it out. And he had also, and this is very convenient, and I don't know, you know, very calculated, I guess, on his part, because he was always surprising me. You know, every trip we went on, there was some grand surprise, and everyone was bigger than the last one. He said, I want to surprise you with everything at the wedding. You know, I was working, I had a new job at the time, and I was working crazy hours, and he said, I want to plan the wedding. I want everything to be a surprise. I just want you to find your dress and show up. And I, you know, I'm a producer. I mean, you know, I'm kind of a control freak, and I was like, wait, wait, what? You know? So it was a very difficult decision for me to, 
take a step back, but all of my friends just said, Benita, for once in your life, let somebody take over, you know, let someone spoil you. You know he has incredible taste. You know he can do this, so just sit back. And so he made me promise not to ask him any questions, which was very, very clever. And it was difficult, but I was. I was kind of like, okay, I'm not going to ask you too many questions. So at first he, and he spent days, supposedly, I would get these texts with these pictures of all these different churches in Florence, and what do you think of this one and that one, and I'm meeting with this priest, that priest, but it was a constant, oh, this priest said no, and they don't want to do it, blah, 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 and this went on for a couple weeks. He spent a lot of time. A lot of time. So this is the thing about, this was this very, very slow, this did not happen overnight, very slow, calculated weaving of this web of lies. So... So then he says, I can't find anyone to marry us. And I said, what, what are we going to do? And I was fine. I would have gotten married on a beach. I didn't care, you know. And he said, well, I'm, I have contacts in Rome. I'm going to go and talk to my contacts. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I know people at the Vatican. And I said, okay. I did know. I had seen paperwork that he had done work at the Vatican. I had seen a letter um, as part of um, the paperwork that was presented to Illinois um, for Hannah's surgery that referenced him having done some kind of medical work on the previous pope. So this wasn't really a surprise. And so the way he explained it to me at the time was, you know, I've done some work from them, but they keep it private. They don't like to publicize it. So I'm going to go and talk to them at the Vatican and see if they can help us find a priest, which made sense. So this was um, November of 2014. And he calls me, I was at work, and he said, I have great news. And I said, okay, great. And he said, he said they found somebody to marry us. And I said, fantastic. And he said, well, there's more, and I need you to sit down. I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm at work. Oh, you know, get out of the office. So I literally left my office. I'm in the hallway of 30 Rockefeller. And he said, you might want to sit down. I'm like, what the hell, you know? And then he says to me, um, you know, I actually met with Pope Francis himself, and he offered to marry us himself. I said, oh, come on, give me a break. You know, I thought he was you know, pranking me or something, you know. I said, the Pope doesn't marry people. Give me a break. And he said, no, he does. And he said, I, I have been Pope Francis's private personal doctor secretly for many years, and he wants to thank me. The Vatican wants to thank me for the work that I've done for them. And he just extended himself, you know, as a way of thanking me. And also because he is so progressive, which Pope Francis is, as we know, he wants to open the doors of the Catholic Church to divorcees, and he kind of sees us as the perfect poster couple. You know, we're both divorcees. So in a way, he wants to use us to, you know, for his own agenda, so this works out. So I still thought he was full of shit, actually, and I hung up on him, you know. And <laughs> um, I said, yeah, I'll talk to you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But the first thing I did was I went to my desk and Googled, does, literally, does the Pope marry people? And what popped up is he does. Um, people don't think he does, but he has. He had just married a whole group of couples, I think two months before that, at the Vatican. And these were all couples who, quote unquote, were living in sin, you know, were divorced or gay or whatever. So I thought, mm, okay. And then over the next few days, you know, Paolo convinced me that this was real. And the way it was presented to me was, 
more of that this was, it was an obligation. We were being given an opportunity um, to help open up the doors of the Catholic Church, and this was kind of something we should do, that we had to do, that maybe it didn't matter to me, maybe it didn't matter, you know, you know, maybe I didn't need the Pope to get married, to marry us, but that, so it was presented as an opportunity, you know, and that we, we should do this, and it was kind of in line with the work he was doing, you know, he was this groundbreaking pioneer, and now he was going to do something else that was kind of pioneering, and just by virtue of being with him, I was kind of along for the ride. In one of the articles I read, to your incredible dress designers, he told them, who, who were a gay couple, that they would be invited and that the Pope would actually give them communion, yes. which was such a... Your designer actually started crying. Yeah. So such a calculated so evil thing So he took this to thing so far. So he, he convinces me that this is happening. And then, you know, as a journalist, the first thing I said to him is, do you understand how how huge this is, you know, the Pope marrying two divorcees, this is going to be, you know, a, a gigantic news story. This is, you know, and so I started to panic, you know, and I said, we, we need to be really careful. And he also made me promise that this was top secret and that because it was the Pope and because it would be so controversial that, you know, we couldn't tell anybody. And so everybody that was involved in the wedding planning had to sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. I mean, this is how far this went. So I get this couture dress designer, because what kind of dress do you wear to get married by the Pope? I mean, I was in, in a panic. Every, they, they sign non-disclosure agreements. The people that design the wedding invitation sign non-disclosure agreements. And we're not really telling anybody except close friends. So he, you know, so now, now because the Pope is marrying us, and this, was, this all happened slowly over the course of months, because the Pope is marrying us, and this is going to be such a big wedding, now all of a sudden all these people get added to our guest list. You know, we have to invite all these dignitaries. And it, it was insane. So he tells me the Obamas are, are going to be invited, the Clintons, who he claimed to be a, a close personal friend of Bill Clinton, and then Sarkozy from France. I mean, all... Have you ever seen him with any of these people? No, but he had stories about all of them. Um, we had a big argument because he said he had to invite Putin. And I said, I don't want Putin at my wedding. And he said, well, you know, I'm doing a clinical trial in Russia. I have to at least invite him. He won't come, but I have to invite him. So all these huge names. And then he starts adding all these um, celebrities. It started with Andrea Bocelli was going to be singing to me in the church because supposedly Andrea Bocelli's mother is friends with his mother and we're getting married, you know, in Rome. That one made sense. But then... John Legend was going to be performing, Elton John. Elton John actually made sense because Elton John was performing that weekend in Rome, so I thought that makes sense. But it turned into something like the wedding of the century. Start getting suspicious when these names were coming up? Yes, but he had an answer for everything, you know. And he, he and as most um, manipulative um, pathological liars will do, he, he just had an answer for everything. And if I started to question anything, they're very good at making you doubt yourself and so it seemed absurd on one level on the other hand it seemed equally if not more absurd that this man would make any of this up why would he this is this famous doctor and scientist what possible reason would he have to make have for making he was making the arrangements <laughs> yeah what possible reason would he have for making any of this up so as head spinning as it seemed it just did it the, the, the possibility that he was lying just was so out there that it just it just seemed impossible you know and he he sat in front of my family in front of my friends and co-workers and talked in excessive detail about you know 
the wedding and the planning that was going on and with my dress designer hours and hours of like going through planning of how I was going to come in with the Pope in the carriage then he took it and then he he kept sort of upping the ante so then with as you were saying with my dress designers I have a lot of gay friends and they were coming to the wedding and my dress designer and his then husband he he said not only are we going to be allowed to take communion but the Pope has decided that our gay friends will also be allowed to take communion. For my dress designer, Matthew Christopher, who's the most beautiful person, he started crying. This meant everything to him. You know, he, he coming out as gay had been difficult for him. He's Catholic. And to think that he could take communion from the Pope, and this is the way this man toyed with people's, you know. So he, it was, I, I don't even know what word to use. It was, it was, I felt like Princess Diana or something. And you met his mother and family as well. Yes. Yeah, so this were, is. Were they is, in on it or, or I mean, I don't, what you did know, they? So this is the other thing. So there are two things. You mentioned most con, con artists are after something, right? Usually money. We look at cases like the Tinder swindler and there's so many stories like this and they steal money from one woman in order to finance the life with the next That's woman. That's a pyramid scheme. Yeah, total pyramid scheme. He did not want money. So whatever his motive was, it wasn't money. He was just so generous. He, you know, he did not want money. The second thing is he did so many things would make anyone think, you know, he was telling you the truth. He flew me and my daughter to Italy to meet his mother. We sat in that woman's kitchen. She made us homemade gnocchi. You know, he pulled out the family photo albums. We went through the photo albums. His sister's daughter was going to be our flower girl. I spoke to her on the phone. You know, I sent his sister's daughter a dress to wear to the wedding. You know, we had conversations over email. But his mother in particular, we sat with her for hours. She cried when we left. Now, in hindsight, I'm thinking, that poor woman, she didn't speak any English, and I don't speak any Italian. What the hell did he tell her? You know, I, I, I was actually just joking with my daughter about this the other, the other night because, you know, we had, we had that dark humor. Probably I was dying or my daughter was dying or we were Sorry. both dying, you know, and she was crying because. But then I'm a very affectionate person and it's not like we were making out in front of him, her, but I was I'm very touchy feely and we were. So how did he explain that? Unless he just said, oh, she's dying and she's in love with me and she can't help herself. I don't know what he told that poor you woman. You think that she didn't know that you were having a relationship. I don't know what she knew. I just don't know. One of your friends sent you an email saying, the Pope's not going to be where you're going to be. What's going on here? In May, uh, we were supposed to get married July 11th, 2015. The planning had gone so far. We had sent out invitations all over the world, these beautiful, elaborate invitations that were very expensive. Um, people had booked plane tickets. People had booked hotel rooms. People had purchased fancy you know, attire to wear to this wedding because it had turned into a four-day event. You know, the wedding was on a Saturday. There was an event Thursday night. There was an event Friday night. There was a brunch Sunday. And everybody, very few people knew that it was a Pope, but they also knew that this was a VIP top-secret wedding. You know, there were instructions on the invitation about how you can't get in without this password and the wedding. And, you know, so everybody knew it was a big deal. Plus, it's in Italy. It was going to be beautiful. And he let it go that far. He let people spend all this money. I, by this point, had four dresses because he kept adding events and telling me I needed another dress. So Mafia was frantically designing custom dresses for me, which I was paying for out of my own pocket because he didn't want to know anything about the dresses. And, he, you know, all this is going on. Everybody, the, the excitement was palpable. People were just so excited for this wedding. I quit my job, which was a huge decision for me and something I never imagined I would do. But he told us that we were going to move to Barcelona, me and my daughter, to his house in Barcelona after the wedding. So I quit my job, and um, I pulled my daughter out of her very difficult-to-get-into New York private school, and 
we had started fighting a bit in the months leading up to the wedding. Um, just he was very tense, and I, there were things that were starting to really bother me. Um, we had not been to his house in Barcelona. He had flown me all over the world, but every single time, every single time we were supposed to go, there was a last-minute cancellation. I, I have an emergency surgery. We can't go, you know, so... And I said, who the hell marries somebody without seeing the house where they're going to marry? I also had not met his children, um, although I was a little more forgiving about that because I come from a divorced family. I'd been divorced myself. I understand how difficult divorces can be. So we had a trip planned about a week after I first found out we were supposed to go to Barcelona. I was supposed to finally meet his children. But we had been arguing about that. And stupid things, like I said, I know you're surprising me about everything, but I want to talk to the wedding planner all this evasion about the wedding planner. I'm like, come on. Well, I don't want her to reveal any of the secrets. And I said, come on, she knows what to, you know. So Maria, the wedding planner, I had been bugging him about, but I, he never put me in contact with Maria. We may have to change location, I think. Um, why don't we go back and talk about when it dawned on you right. that this was not the real thing? So the day after I left my job at NBC, um, I was at the spa with some girlfriends who were, I was scared, actually. I had, I had left, you know, my dream job, basically, you know. I, Paolo was at the height of his career. I was also at the height of my career. You know, I, I had done exceptionally well at NBC. I had won a lot of awards. I loved my job. I loved the people I work with. And for me to leave my job was a huge decision. And it was kind of agonizing. And even though it sounded dreamy to kind of ride off into the sunset with him and live in Barcelona, I was scared, you know, I didn't know what I, I, I knew I would still work, you know, freelance from there, but I loved my job. So I was sad the day after I left and my girlfriends were trying to cheer me up and we were at the spa and I came out, my phone had been turned off and I turn on my phone and the first thing I see is an email from a colleague and the, the headline says, the subject line just says the Pope. And I click on it and it's an article that says that the Pope is going to be in South America on the date of our wedding and that this trip has been planned for a very long time. And somehow when I read that email, I just knew, you know, I think there had been all these little red flags that had been nagging at me for a few months and I was uncomfortable. But, you know, I didn't want to believe that this man, I didn't know what he was lying about, but something felt off and I was worried. And when I read that email, I just knew. And I felt sick. I, I literally almost fell on the ground. I felt like somebody punched me in the stomach. And, of course, I immediately contact him and said, what the hell's going on? And, you know, he, of course, as usual, just lies his way out of it. He, he first says, I'm so sorry, my love. I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out. I'll, I'll call the Vatican immediately. And then he calls me back and says, listen, it's, it's complicated. It's internal Vatican politics. You know, the, the former um, living Pope, Benedict, it, who is extremely controversial, I mean, extremely conservative, conservative, and never wanted Francis to marry us. In fact, Paolo had told me that he wasn't even inviting Benedict to the wedding because he was so, you know, vehemently opposed to, to what Pope Francis was doing. So he said that Benedict had intervened and gone behind Francis's back and arranged this trip in South America on purpose so that the Pope couldn't marry us. And he said, I don't know, I'll figure something out. Either we'll get somebody else to marry us or I'll get the Pope to come back somehow, or, but everything will be okay. By this point, I didn't believe a word he was saying. I'm thinking, BS, you know. Um, and I was sick, you know, I was sick. I kept, I, and I remember an hour after I got this email, I was, came home with my two friends that were with me. I was pacing my apartment and it was, 
noon or something and somebody cracked a bottle of champagne or something just to try and calm me down. And I just was walking back and forth and I just said, what if this is all a lie? What if this is all a lie? And they, they almost didn't know what to say, but they just kept saying, everything will be okay. Maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. And maybe there's, there'll still be a wedding. But then everything changed from there. I sort of, I describe it as I woke up out of my love haze, and, and if you can call it that, and put my journalist hat back on and went into hyper-investigative mode. And I also made a very calculated decision to play a cat and mouse game with him and not tell him what was going on. I didn't know at that point what the extent of the lies were, but I knew he wasn't going to tell me the truth. So I hired a private investigator, and I started investigating myself. And I didn't tell him anything. I hired the investigator just because obviously this is my life. And even though I'm an investigative journalist, I thought I better have somebody else <laughs> checking things as well. And I canceled the wedding. And I told Paolo, which is very convenient. At the time, the allegations of scientific misconduct were really blowing up here again. And he was so stressed. And I just said, look, you know, it's not a good time for us to get married. Everybody will understand. Anyone that Googles you right now will see what's going on. And let's just postpone this. He must have breathed the biggest sigh of relief ever, you know. And he just said, oh, you're right. I know. It's terrible. But, you know, that's a good decision. So all I told him was I'm canceling the wedding. In his mind, we we're just postponing it. I'm still, even though it made me sick, I'm still texting him and talking to him on the phone and telling him I love him, but I'm in full-on investigative mode. And my very first suspicion and the first thing I said to the private investigator is, I'll bet money he's not really divorced, you know. And in rapid succession, what I find out, first of all, literally everything about the wedding was a lie. It was some sick, twisted fantasy in his head. Nothing, I mean, nothing about it was true. He didn't know any of these people. He sure as hell didn't know the Pope. He's not the Pope's private personal doctor. All the venues he said were booked had never heard of him. He, the castle he told all our guests they were staying in, that he went on for hours, you know, talking about the fancy restaurant in Florence that he was catering the wedding, no contract, never heard of him. You know, it was just one thing after another. Everything was a lie. And, I, and I'm thinking, how twisted do you have to be? You made up this whole wedding and you let people buy plane tickets, do all these things. You let me spend money on all these dresses. You let me quit my job. You let me pull my daughter out of her school. I mean, I was enraged and in so much shock. I mean, like, who does this? I knew there had to be more. And I also thought something's hiding in that house in Barcelona. There's a reason he hasn't let me go to that house, right? So I decided to come to Europe and, and do more investigating on my own. Um, I also had found out by this point that he never got divorced, so he never could have legally married me in the first place. And then a lot of people couldn't cancel their tickets because it was only six weeks before the wedding, so a lot of people decided to come to Italy anyway. It's not like I was sending them to Iowa or something. <laughs> so I, um, on what was supposed to be my wedding day, I flew, I flew to Rome um, by myself and... Uh, cried on the plane, had a glass of champagne on the plane and kind of toasted myself. Um, and I came for a couple of reasons. I arranged with a couple of girlfriends that were coming anyway. I said, I want to go and see all the places where I was supposed to be going. I want to do some investigating and I kind of want to have the ultimate girls trip. And that's what we did. So it was a great 
total roller coaster of emotions because I was crying half the time and devastated and then laughing. But I went, I went, I went to the castle where we were supposed to, you know, be. I went, you know, to where Elton John was performing. We went, we actually went to Elton John's concert. Um, I kind of wanted to live a little bit of what I thought I was going to be living. And then also I started going everywhere and asking questions. And of course I got the same answer every time. No, never heard of Dr. Maccarini. Never heard of you. Don't know about any wedding. And then from Rome, I went to Barcelona. My only goal in Barcelona was to go to the house. One of the interesting things was when I started investigating, he'd given me an address, you know, for people to send wedding gifts. The address was bogus. So, <laughs> so I find the right address. He doesn't know that I have the address. He does not know that I'm in Europe. I'm still playing this game with him. So I told him that I was so devastated about the wedding that I had taken a girl's trip to upstate New York. Now I'm lying to him. I'm playing his game. And it was me and my best friend, Nancy, from college, and another very dear friend of mine, Lee, from Australia, the three of us. We rented a car, and we drove to his house in Barcelona, which is about 30 minutes outside of Barcelona. He lives at the top of this seaside hill, lovely little community. I had no idea what I was going to find in this house, and I was shaking nervous. And I got a blonde wig, which is this hideous blonde wig, which is kind of funny, but I just wanted a disguise in case I needed it. And... So I'm in the backseat in this crazy blonde wig, and we came up with a kind of last-minute haphazard plan that Lee and Nancy would go and knock on the door and just say to whoever answered that, you know, they were there for the wedding, and they picked up a bottle of wine and a card, or I think it was just a bottle of wine, to leave him as a gift. Now, that morning, he told me he was in Russia, in Krasnodar, doing, you know, working on his clinical trial. So he's told me he's in Russia. He does not know that I'm here in Barcelona. And I decided that I would stay in the car first and just to kind of do some reconnaissance. And I'm sitting in a car at the top of the hill. My two friends go down and knock on the door. I can't hear anything, but I can see. And the first thing I see is him coming down the stairs. So now I lose it in the car because he's not in Russia. So, and I was taping myself in the car. Um, I just want to, I guess, I think it's just a journalistic instinct. I wanted to keep a record of it. I'm swearing, I'm crying, I'm screaming. And then I see a woman and two little children coming, you know, on, on the porch. And even from where I am, I can hear them calling him dad. And I can see, I know what his Italian wife looks like. My friends even these had... much younger, these children. Yeah. And my friends even had his Italian wife's picture on their phone in case she answered the door. This was not her. This was another woman. And these are not his children because his children are, you know, 19, 20. These kids are about five and seven. And I lost my mind. And I thought, you know... <laughs> MF, this is the reason he never brought me to Barcelona. He's hiding a whole nother family. And that was, I don't know, that was the moment when everything just hit me, that this man literally lied to me about everything. And I don't know what kind of game he's playing, but this is sick. Up until that point, I had planned to get out of the car and confront him. But once I saw those kids, I couldn't do it. You know, I'm a mom. My friends are moms. I didn't want, want to cause a housewives of Barcelona scene <laughs> in front of the kids, you know. And, but it was horrible. My friends came back to the car, and then they told me when they came back to the car that it was so obvious that he was caught. Like, his eyeballs were going back and forth, like zip, 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 because he was trying to calculate the next line. He was like, what are you doing here? You know, he never knew that I was there. He never knew that I was up in the car, but he could not get rid of them fast enough. And right there off the bat, your, your supposed fiancé's best friend shows up at the door. You don't invite her in, you know, um... So after I calmed down, which took a while, I finally confronted him. I wrote him a very long text 
telling him everything that I knew, calling him every name under the sun and blah, blah, blah. He writes back one word. He just wrote, wow. And that's it. That's it. That's all the man had to say. Because he was caught. He was busted. What could he say at that point? I have some questions. First of all, how do you think he was going to get out of this wedding? Well, so this is the money question to this day. Two, two big questions. Number one is why. Why, yeah. why the hell do any of this? Because as we said, like, it wasn't like he was you know, taking money from me or getting anything out of it, really. And the second question is, what the hell was his endgame? Because this clearly was going to implode. There was no way it wasn't because he had taken it so far. How in the hell did he think he was getting out of it? I mean, he, I, I made it easy for him by canceling the wedding, right? So what if I hadn't? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I think... If he had taken it all the way, you know, to people actually flying to Italy and me flying to Italy, I think he would have said, you know, there's a security threat. There's a threat on the Pope's life. A new lie. Oh, yeah, a new lie. Or there's, you know, one of, the, one of the world leaders is, you know, something's been compromised. It's too dangerous. We can't get married. But then what? I'm still there. I have my wedding dress. I still think we're getting married. I don't know what the hell his plan was. You know, I don't know that people like him really have a plan I think he's just living in the moment you think I think they kind of go from one lie to the next and I think they think they're going to get away with it because they usually do you know and they've gotten away with it for so long and I think there's the thrill of the risk that and he probably never meant to let it go that far I don't have any idea the amount of time he spent with it's insane designers it's insane and you should see the texts I have going into minute detail about, you know, this is a door you're going to come in, and this is where the Swiss Guard's going to be, and this is what this is going to happen. And I, I just came out of a meeting with, you know, this person and that person, and so much detail. Like, the fantasy of it, the elaborate detail is, is nuts. It's nuts. Do you think it was like a, a thrill for him that you were a journalist? I think so. And also th- the fact that there's a case that maybe you presented a good alibi for him when all these other things were happening and you know you were a smart woman I mean it's all conjecture right nobody can get inside that man's black box of a head but I think yes I think um I was a challenge to him you know and the fact that I was a journalist was was appealing and it's kind of the thrill of the of the risk you know I think they you know the thrill of getting away with it and then the more people that started to believe it, and the, the, I think it just the train was out of the station and it got away from him, you know. Yeah. Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe he thought I was going to help him, and maybe because I didn't know about, you know, obviously at that point nobody knew about the whistleblowers yet, and none of this had been made public, and maybe he thought I was, you know, he was going to bring me as an ally onto his side and I was going to be able to help him. I, I just, I don't know. One of the experts in the Vanity Fair piece described him as a psychological expert. Macarini is the extreme form of a con man. He's clearly bright and has accomplishments, but he can't contain himself. Sounds almost like a psychopathic. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not an, I'm not an expert and I can't diagnose him. I think he is some kind of sociopath at, at a minimum. Um, He's a pathological liar, and he's, he's an absolute narcissist, you know. Um, How many women were there? I don't know, you know. And the women really are the least of it. Um, I mean, I know that there was, there was me, there's the Italian wife, there's, there's the woman in Barcelona. I know of one other woman um, who contacted me whose identity ha- I have always kept private. But that's at least four women that were, were, he was dealing with at the same time. And they don't talk. They don't want to. No. You know. And he tells the world he has two children. I know of five. Um, and I'm sure there are more. But the thing that really alarmed me, you know, after, after Barcelona and after making this 
you know, devastating discovery, you know, I, I was so broken. And so he had just railroaded my life, you know, and I had given up everything. Everything was at stake. To do this to my daughter, you know, I was incensed. A little girl whose father just died, and you have the nerve to ride in on your fake white horse and promise her. You know, he talked to her about the school she was going to in Barcelona and the life she was going to have in Barcelona. I mean, to sit in front of a little girl and do that, I can't, to this day, cannot fathom how the hell you do that. And I was so angry, and then at the same time, I was so embarrassed and so humiliated. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm not supposed to get fooled, and I just got fooled, you know? And all my friends and my family, I felt so guilty and responsible, you know? I had all these people on the train behind me because I believed it, they believed it, and now they had lost money, you know? And it was so overwhelmingly devastating and crushing. I kind of just wanted to hide and, and not come out. Oh, I was going to say, but the thing that hit me immediately was, whoa, wait a minute. If he's lying to me like this and telling such absurd, ridiculous lies, lies, there is no way in hell he's not lying in his professional life. I didn't have evidence of it, but I felt an urgency to go public and expose him because I thought this man is dangerous. And I, need to, I, need to, I thought I might be the only person at the time that had the means to do it. And I, th- I thought, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how embarrassing this is going to be. I have to let the world know that this super surgeon is entirely a different person and that he's, he's downright dangerous. It was, it was, and his patients might be at risk. And that was, I was so scared. I mean, the Vanity Fair piece in 2016, together with a really excellent Swedish documentary series called The Experiment, you guys started to move the needle here. Um, But Karolinska Institute, they defended him repeatedly between 2015, another external review, and 2018. Several whistleblowers came out. Your story was out. What are some of the things that you think he lied about professionally on his CV? Well, on his CV, that's it's a bit of a you know, it's still a little bit unclear. There are there are clearly fabrications and exaggerations on his CV. You know, there's sort of partial truths, which I think is true for a lot of the things in his life. There's sort of it's. He said he completed training when maybe he didn't really complete training. As far as everybody can tell, he is a real doctor. You know, that's not fake. He did get trained. Um, he's quite a skilled surgeon, according to many people that operated with him. He's cl- clearly brilliant, which is the tragedy of this whole thing. Um, but a lot of exaggeration and, and propping himself up and a lot of falsehoods there about how much training he got, what training he got. I think there's still a lot of questions about that. We've been talking about that a lot this week at the trial. And then the sickening part to me is that, you know, he was thought of as this, you know, renegade pioneer and so much hope was attached, so much promise attached to this man. And, and it turns out that, you know, he did not get the ethical approvals he needed to do these surgeries. He did not do the animal experiments that you are supposed to do before you do an experimental procedure. He keeps trying to say, well, it's experimental procedure, people die. Sure, they do. But you don't go into anything experimental on humans without trying it out on animals first. And he didn't do that. So he used people as human guinea pigs. You know, I don't know if he ever thought this thing was going to work. I, I don't know. But... Now, out of the eight people that got this bio-artificial trachea made out of plastic, seven of them are dead. The only one that's alive had the thing taken out. And horrible deaths. Horrible, excruciating deaths. You know, they went through living hell before they died. And most of them didn't really even need this thing and probably would have lived longer had they not had this surgery. So, you know, and that's why he's on trial now. 
it's yeah, it's just horrifying. And and it it what happened to me pales in comparison to what happened to his patients. You know, it's just. But he's, it, it appears that he just lies in every facet of his life. And there were certain things, like 2012, um, there were certain things coming out of Italy that he was lying about certain things on his CV. He got into, but do you find Karolinska complicit in this? I think, so one of the first things I did, actually, when I got back from Barcelona is I wrote to Karolinska. And I just said, look, I don't have any evidence of it, but I think you need to know that this man, you know, your superstar surgeon is not who you think he is. And I'm concerned and I'm worried. Nobody responded. I never got an answer. I wrote to them twice. And I think what happens, what happened with Paolo is that there's so much at stake here. I mean, he was the superstar and there were so many people riding on his coattails. And even if you start to think something's not right, you don't want to be the person, I'm not talking about myself, but there's this general feeling, I think, that you don't want to be the person to, to raise your hand and say, mm, you know, I, I don't know, because we're talking about money. Huge amounts of money are at stake. Prestige. This man was propping Karolinska up. You know, there were so many people had invested money in him and there was so much at stake here and grants and papers and so many things. So to blow all that up, the consequences are devastating. So I think a lot of people looked the other way. A lot of people didn't want to face the fact that Dr. Paolo Maccherini is not who we think he is. So it's a lot easier to kind of try and sweep it under the rug. And there was a lot of sweeping going on. Yeah. And I, I know that I can correlate that to the per, a personal thing because going public and speaking up is exceedingly difficult. And it's embarrassing. I didn't want to raise my hand to the whole world. But this is, as you say in many reports, as everyone, especially American reports, Karolinska, who gives out the Nobel yeah. Prize in medicine. I mean, this is not... They tried to sweep it under the rug, and I think that's appalling. Um, and they should be, and there's been a lot of talk about that this week too, I think these past few weeks. They should be held accountable as well, you know. Um, to allow somebody like Dr. Paolo Maccherini to do this and to get away with this, he could have been stopped much sooner. This could have been, lives probably could have been saved, quite frankly. And there was too many people who were just unwilling to speak up. And, and that's disturbing. There were several whistleblowers that you've interviewed, you've had in your documentary and things. What were the consequences for them when they spoke up? The whistleblowers um, and I have, have become, and also Busset, who did the documentary, I mean, it was so interesting because I first went public in Vanity Fair, and then a few weeks later, this documentary, The Fatal Experiments, comes out. I knew nothing about this documentary. I knew nothing about the whistleblowers, but it was a combination of the two things that brought the whole house of cards tumbling down. So over the course, I've become friends with Busse, the, um, the producer of that documentary. He's interviewed me. I've interviewed him. And the whistleblowers. And um, I've gotten to know the whistleblowers a lot better, especially here for the trial. Um, and our, in a way, our experiences are very parallel because they were punished, basically, and ostracized for, for speaking up. I mean, it's classic whistleblower. You know? By Karolinska. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All they're doing is trying to tell the truth and expose somebody who's dangerous. And they got questioned and they were threatened with losing their jobs, you know, and, and that's horrible, you know, and it's a very difficult thing to speak up. And I've had some parallel experiences with, with professional stuff. People, pe people don't want you to talk. People don't want you to re reveal something that's, that's embarrassing. So being a, I, I have so much respect for those whistleblowers. You know, what they did is incredible. And to put their own careers at risk. And that's how dangerous Dr. Paolo Maccarini is, that people are willing to, to take any risk just to expose him. Because if you don't, what happens, you know? 
How has your image of Karolinska, Nobel, Sweden changed during this process? I don't know that I've thought so much about that because I've just been so focused on on continuing to expose him and and hoping that he doesn't harm anybody else. Um, but I guess I was disappointed, you know. I was disappointed that people didn't own this more and come out in front of it and just say, look, we messed up, you know. Like I'm saying, hey, look, I messed up, you know, basically. I fell for it. I wish they, w- I wish they would own it and just say, you know, we got fooled. Got fooled too because I'll – that's the thing about Dr. Macarini. It wasn't just me he fooled. He fooled so many people, so many doctors, scientists, institutions, you know. Yeah, from Illinois. To Every, everywhere. To the top institutions, the top doctors, you know. He fooled so many people. So why not just come out in front of it and just say, you know what, we got fooled. And I know they're trying to make corrections, and, they, and there seems to be, at least from what I can tell, a concerted effort, effort to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, but I wish people were braver in just saying, yeah, you know what, I got fooled. What do we do about it now? What are you hoping for this trial, the outcome? I'm not overly optimistic that he'll be convicted. Um, from what I can tell, the Swedish system is quite different than the U.S. and seems to be a little more complicated and maybe softer. I don't know. Um, but I think the very fact that Dr. Paolo Macarini is sitting in a courtroom, um, finally, after all these years, means everything. You know, for me, it's been seven years. For the whistleblowers, it's been a lot longer. For the patients and the families of those patients, it's been a lot longer. It's for life. Yeah. He's been walking around all this time with no accountability, with no consequences, with nothing, just like nothing ever happened, you know? I mean, his reputation is tanked, you know? He's taken a massive fall from grace, but he has not been forced to be held accountable. And so the very fact that he's sitting in this courtroom facing criminal charges and could be convicted and could, in theory, go to jail or prison means everything. And the world is watching. He's squirming in that courtroom. He's uncomfortable. And no matter what the outcome, I'm just glad that he's, he's here in this courtroom and that the story's being told again and people are hearing about it. And this is some form of justice for those patients and for the families of those patients. They're the ones that need justice. You and know? he won't work again. I don't know that he won't work again. He could. You know, they're not, this trial is not about taking away his medical license. You know, I don't think he should ever, personally, I don't think he should operate on anyone again, but that's not up to me. Yeah. In hindsight, what shocked you the most of this story? The absolute recklessness you know he he plays with people's lives like they are meaningless you know like there were just pawns on a chessboard and you know to be used and discarded when he's done with them he doesn't care he doesn't care who he hurts he doesn't care who dies he doesn't he doesn't care what happens to anyone it's all for his seemingly for his own personal gain and the brazen audacity of the lies is is still utterly astounding and confounding to me. How you tell the kind of lies you told me and my family and my friends about a wedding that you know the entire time is never going to happen is just sick. How you sit in front of a little girl who just lost her dad and, you know, do things like take her into a church and hold her hand and tell her to talk to her dad and the whole time you're lying to her is twisted. Something's wrong with the man. You know, something is seriously wrong with the man. And then to walk, and he's doing it in court now, trying to make himself out like the big hero, like all, you know, the altruistic doctor he always claimed to be who wants to save lives. It's just disgusting. 
it's just disgusting. I believe he his his recklessness did cause the deaths of people, and I think the man is dangerous. I think he's just dangerous, and I think he's an, an incredibly skilled liar, and that's what's frightening because he still has the ability to charm people. You know, the thing that got him here and that got him past all these barriers, and that's also one of the reasons he got away with it at Karolinska. People like Dr. Paolo Macarini who walk the walk and talk the talk. He walks into a room. He's so charming and soothing voice and intelligent. You never imagine somebody like that would lie. And this is also part of the reason he got away with it. It's probably the reason they didn't do a, a you know, you know, somebody comes to you with the credentials he has and the accolades he has. You're not going to go digging through his references and calling people. You just assume he is who he says he is. And what about you? Um, what have you learned about yourself? And uh, what have you learned from this story? So many things. I'm much stronger than I, than I ever imagined I was. Um, you know, it's still painful. I think I, I have lingering trust issues, um, which really makes me sad because one of the things that I promised myself at the beginning was that I will not allow him to change the essence of me and who I am as a person and as a woman. I'm a diehard romantic, you know, I love love, and I promised myself that I would not become bitter, um, and I haven't, and I still believe in love and romance, and, but it is hard, you know, I, I, that little thing nagging at me, something will happen, and I don't trust, and, you know, that's kind of sad, um, but one of the beautiful things that's happened out of all this, which I did not expect, because my goal at the beginning was simply to expose him and just put it out there. And it wasn't a revenge mission or anything. It was just, I just want the world to know who he is, and then they can do what they want with it. But when I went public, all these women started reaching out to me and thanking me. And I was surprised by that at first, and I was very humbled by it, because they thanked me for being brave and called me courageous and a hero and all these things. And they thanked me for making them feel less stupid and less alone. And because similar things have happened to them, not as extreme as my case, but unfortunately, there are a lot of con artists out there and a lot of women who get duped by the people they fall in love with. And then I realized, wow, this is happening so much and people are so, there's a lot of shaming into silence. People are afraid to talk about this. And so now it's sort of morphed into a mission where I'm empowering women. Um, this is a big part of your work. It's a huge right? part of my work mm -hmm. now, yeah. My main focus now is this mission to empower women to not be shamed into silence. Where and Where can they you know, find information? If um, I'm on social media, on Instagram and um, TikTok under LoveCond. It's L-O-V-E-C-O-N-N-E-D. And I have a podcast on YouTube now where I'm telling other women's stories. Um, and this means everything to me. I'm very passionate about it. And the beautiful thing about being here in Sweden for the trial is I have so much support. I have, I have strangers reaching out to me who see me on the news or find me on social media encouraging me, and I'm kind of riding this wave of support from all these women who are just thanking me and encouraging me to keep going and show these guys, these con artists, that, you know, you know you're not going to take us down, and we will fight back. And I do think that's probably the reason he looks at me, he looked at me the way he did in the courtroom. I don't think in a million years Dr. Maccarini ever anticipated that I would rise up and fight back the way I have. I think he vastly underestimated me. And there's some, I don't know, you know, sweet redemption in that. <laughs> Benita, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for telling your story, and thank you. I hope the best outcome that's possible for the patients 
and for your soul. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show. Wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.